We're going to continue our study of the book of John. We have finished chapter 11. <laughs> we were on chapter 11, I think, three weeks. There was just a lot there. So we're moving into chapter 12 of the book of John. And we're going to see something that's really interesting here because the way the, the gospel of John is laid out, you know, we've spent, we started in October uh, with the fellowship, the end of October last year, and we've been teaching through John. We just finished chapter 11, and that is pretty much the, the three full years of Jesus' ministry, those first 11 chapters. And so now the rest of the book of John is going to be dealing with just uh, the last week. Uh, we're going to see as it moves towards Passover, and, and we're going to be uh, talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so the rest of the book of John is, is just dealing with the last weeks of Jesus being on earth doing his ministry. So um, it's pretty fascinating. So John chapter 12, uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, uh, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, who him had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to, to look at this passage of Scripture this morning. And Lord, as always, uh, we just don't want to read it. We want to understand it. We want to know how to apply it in our lives. Uh, we just don't want it just for knowledge, Lord, although we do want to learn from it. But Lord, we want to be able to put it to practice, the, the principles, the precepts that you have for us in your word. So Father, speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning as we study uh, this section of scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we see in John chapter 12 that the scene shifts from this council that we looked at last week that deciding to put Jesus to death. We, we read that last week. And we, it shifts from that scene to the house of Simon, the text says. And this is actually Simon the leper. If you look at the other accounts in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, you see that they were known... Uh, th this man was known as Simon the leper, whose house they had gone to. And I think that as it refers to him as Simon the leper, we obviously know that uh, we could change his name to Simon who was previously the leper, right? Because we know that Jesus uh, would have healed him. Uh, 
So they're at Simon's house, and there's at least, at least a minimum of 17 people there. We have Jesus, we have Simon, the previous leper, we have Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and the 12 disciples. So we know we have at least that many, but as we go through this text, it's obvious that there was other Jews there as well. And they're eating supper. The text says, New King James Version, they're eating supper. Now, I like that because I get corrected all the time saying that it's dinner. But here we have God's Word telling us that it's what? It's supper, okay? So, for those of you that, you know, would, would have or would want to correct me, <laughs> and I have to laugh because Chris is laughing as well right now. Uh, <laughs> being one of those who corrects me on a regular basis. But not just on this, but a whole plethora of things. So they're eating supper. Uh, and they're probably, you picture the scene now, they didn't gather around a big table like we would today. Uh, they reclined when they ate. They were just sitting everywhere. Uh, never been in a church that did that. I've heard of those before, but they don't have any chairs that people just kind of sit and lay around everywhere. Just kind of bizarre, I think. I like the, the chair thing, so we're going we're gonna to continue to go with that. Unless we run out of room. You know, if we run out of room, then the floor's next, right? Uh, I know Pastor Chuck dealt with that in his ministry out in California. They were just sitting everywhere, the hippies were. And uh, I think that would be great. But we'll start off just the way we are with chairs. So, but they're, they're all sitting around and they're probably sharing events that have taken place uh, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus because miracles that had happened, you know, people were healed uh, from their sicknesses and ailments and people were being fed and teaching was being done, counseling, all these different things and all these people that are here would have been affected by that in, in one way or another. So you imagine the disciples sharing about what they've seen and experienced, which is just a lot of things. Uh, with Jesus. Simon, uh, the previous leper, sharing of his experience of being healed of his uh, leprosy. There's a, um, there's a comedian out there uh, that tours the country, and one of the things that he shares is, can you imagine a group of people coming together you know, for whatever reason, and they're all sharing about their uh, experiences, you know? And in this group of people, one of the guys is one of the guys that maybe had walked on the moon. So as you're sharing these experiences, you know, gosh, you know, I've been, I was out fishing once and I caught this, you know, a huge fish. And, uh, and you know, hey, I was in the, uh, making assault on the, the peaks of, you know, the Mount Kilimanjaro or what, it's probably just one peak. Uh, <laughs> you know, climb, whatever. You know, and it goes around the table and the guy's, yeah, well, I, I walked on the moon. You know, it is kind of, it's kind of a downer for everybody else, isn't it? Because all of a sudden you just see, wow, this, how do you top that? Very few people have walked on the moon. So I kind of put that in this scene as well, if you think about that. All these people sharing their experiences. And then it comes around to Lazarus. And he says, well, you see, for me, it all started a few weeks ago when I was dead. <laughs> and I was raised from the dead. You know, what a story. What a, what a testimony, what something you know, to share, uh, to, to just kind of take over the conversation, if you will, because that's kind of hard to top. I, I don't know uh, if I had been there, you know, it's like, 
whatever story, I've got a lot of stories, but whatever story I have to share would just pale in comparison to someone saying, yeah, you know, four days ago, whatever, I was dead, and uh, now I'm not anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. But we're going to see in our text today life application lessons for us from the lives of three people. And we have talked about these three people throughout chapter 11 in the book of John, and now we're going to see them in this text again today. And the teaching today is entitled, The Three W's. The Three W's. Now, it's not weeding, whiting, and arithmetic. It's three other W's. And we're going to see these things applied in the, in the lives of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who we've talked about before. We're going to see that Martha is working. We're going to see that Mary is worshiping. And we're going to see Lazarus is witnessing. So number one, if you're a note taker, working. Number two, worshiping. And number three, witnessing. Now the order of this isn't important, but having a balance of all three of these in our own personal lives is very important. So also is the family of God, us, those of us gathered here that call ourselves a church or a family, it's very important that we keep balancing these three, three things as well as a church body, as a body of believers, as a fellowship, working, worshiping, and witnessing. And we're going to see all three of these things manifested in this text. But also in this text, John has given us insight into exactly when and where all this is taking place. Look at verse 1 again. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. It says just six days before the Passover. Now this is the final week before Jesus is to die on the cross. And right now, Bethany, he is about two miles outside of Jerusalem in this town of Bethany, having supper with friends. Now to alleviate any confusion, if you were to look at these accounts in Matthew and in Mark, this time it says that it's two days after Passover in those two accounts. Yet here it says it's six days after the Passover. So you read that and you think, oh, well, well, I wonder what that's about. Critics will take text like that and they'll say, you see right here in the Bible, here's a discrepancy. The Bible is contradicting itself. No, it's not. If you look at the text and what it has to say, and I want to point this out this morning because this does happen to us, doesn't it? We'll get into a situation and somebody will throw something like this in our face and say, well, you know, here the Bible contradicts itself. I've looked at this and it says this in Matthew and it says this in Mark, but in John's gospel it says this. So what does the text say in verse 1 of John 12? It says six days before the Passover, what? Jesus came to Bethany, doesn't it? Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover. In Matthew and Mark's account, this supper in our text, it says it happened two days before the Passover. So what's the simple answer here for us? Jesus came to Bethany four days before this supper or six days before the Passover. So if He came to Bethany six days before the Passover and He was having supper two days before the Passover, He'd been in Bethany four days before this supper took place. This makes sense. If you look at the text, it's very clear. 
so six days before. Well, if you read the other gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark, and if you've been a part of Calvary Chapel or been around it for any length of time at all, you know that we promote teaching the text or learning the text in context. So don't just take a verse, grab it out, and base a whole new uh, religion on that one verse. Look at what the other text has to say before and after. We, we like to call it the 2020 rule or principle. Read 20 verses before and 20 verses after the verse you're on so you get a better idea of what's happening. Sometimes it takes a whole chapter. Sometimes it takes several chapters to try to determine what's going on there. But if you look at the, the text in context, you gain insight as to what's really happening there. And in those two other Gospels, Matthew and, and Mark, we see that Jesus is teaching for a great length of time. Uh, in the other Gospels, there's a lot of teaching that takes place before this meal takes place at the, at the house of Simon the leper. So um, these supposed contradictions, they get eliminated fairly quickly when you're taking in the full counsel of God's Word. Paul talks about, about that. I haven't forsaken to give you what? The full counsel of God's Word. That's all of it. Everything that's available, giving you that full counsel. So we, we, we want to make a practice of doing that as well here all the time. So you might ask, Pastor Jim, well, why, why would you even bring this up? You know, why, why is this even important? Uh, I didn't even notice until you mentioned it. Some of you might be thinking, well, exactly. That's why I'm bringing up. It's, it's to dispel any confusion for yourself or for others uh, with text like this uh, for now or in the future. This happens a lot. I don't know if you, if you listen to Grace FM four o'clock in the afternoon, there's the call-in show. And it happens quite often that people will call into that show with questions just like this. Hey, I see this in this gospel, but I see this in the other gospel. What's going on there? And so they're able to show them from the text, hey, this, this is what's going on. Look at the gospels in harmony, all working together, and uh, you'll, you'll, just, you'll get great insight into uh, the ministry that's taking place there. So... Uh, if you or we, we open up the door to say that some of the Bible isn't true, you see, that, that's what happens when there's a contradiction. So, oh, so it's a contradiction. At least that part of it's not true. And if you open up the door to that, anywhere throughout Scripture, you run into a real danger. Because then the question arises, well, if, if that's not true, then is, is there other parts that's not true? No. It's all true, 100% true. You can trust in that. You can go to the bank with that. So it is God's inspired word. So Jesus is in Bethany, and after four days of teaching, ministering to people, probably healing, doing all sorts of things that he, he did on a regular basis, just being with the people, he's invited to supper. So John's account doesn't say it's Simon the leper's house, but as we know from Matthew and Mark's account, it, it does. Verse 2, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. They made him supper, and Martha is doing what? Serving. She's, Martha is working. So number one, working. Why is Martha serving or working at... Simon's house. That's what Martha does, right? We've seen that in her. Martha is one who serves. She works. So she's just being who God made her 
to be, right? That's the way that she, uh, that's the ministry for Martha. The, the gift of hospitality is very strong in this woman, without a doubt. So she's serving, she's working. That's how, that's how God built her. That's how she's designed. Uh, we, we always need to keep that in mind because you've, you heard it say, said many times in Christian circles, uh, God you know, has designed you to do a certain thing. He has a certain ministry for you. God has given you a particular gift to use for His glory. That's true in the lives of every one of us. We, each one of us is uniquely designed and built to carry out that thing that God wants us to do. That Yes, there's some crossover, without a doubt. There's, uh, there's many uh, different gifts, and so some of us uh, have different gifts, and we're able to use those in different ways. But for the most part, God has built you to do something for Him and for His kingdom. And finding out what that is is a very exciting thing. So if you don't know what that is, you know, just be praying about that. It's not something you can walk up to me or someone else and say, Pastor Jim, what is my gift? I, I don't know for sure. But as I spend more time with you, as you become involved with the body at this church or any other church, that starts getting revealed because it's something that happens naturally in your life. If it's strife, it's just something you're just like really, uh, you know, sweating and working at. It's probably not your gift. Um, there's a saying that's gone around for years. When you're operating within your gift, you get maximum efficiency with minimum fatigue. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Be why? Because you're doing what God built you to do. It comes very naturally. Maximum efficiency with minimum fatigue. Martha, man, she is a working woman. So she, she is doing this and doing it very well. That's how God uh, designed her. So this time it's different, though, than the account we looked at in Luke chapter 10. A few weeks ago we looked at that. The difference being she's doing the same thing. She's working, she's serving, but this time she's not complaining. <laughs> she was complaining before because Mary, her sister, was not helping. Now she is just doing what God has built her to do. And she's doing it with joy. I'm not going to be concerned with who's doing what and who's not doing what or whatever. I'm just going to do what God has called me to do and have joy in that. She has the gift of hospitality, and we know that, and she's using it for the glory of God. She's working serving uh, for the Lord. She's no longer looking at others and saying, how come you're not doing what I'm doing? You're, you're not doing as much as me. You're not doing anything, they might even say. And that can be true. <laughs> Maybe there are others that aren't doing as much as you are in your eyes. But maybe there's someone who prays constantly at home. Uh, I, I know of some elderly people in uh, the church in Greeley that, oh my word, they're just prayer warriors. That they know that that's how they can uh, serve the Lord is by interceding in prayer for others. And they do it very well. You, you feel those prayers. So we don't need to be in a place where we're looking at others and saying, oh, how come they're not doing what I'm doing? They obviously you know, aren't as gifted as I am or whatever. You know, uh, that happens in churches sometimes. So we need to be in a place where we recognize God has called each and every one of us to do something. And let me make it clear, it doesn't have to happen inside these four walls. 
God's ministry goes way beyond what we do on Sunday morning or what we do on Thursday night. Your ministry could be something that's outside of this church and it's a huge blessing to somebody. Praise God. That's where you need to be. Not that I want you here on Sunday mornings too, but obviously God has you serving in those places. So whatever and however He has called you to do something, do it for His glory without murmuring or complaining. Complaining. So Martha's working, and she's full of joy, just to be able to do it for the Lord. She is, you might want to write this down, she is busy and blessed. <laughs> because as she is busy, as she is carrying out that ministry that God wants her to do, she's blessing others, but it's a total blessing to her as well, because she's being used by the Lord. So she's busy and blessed. It's all about, about focus. If you keep your focus on the Lord, you can be busy and blessed. So number two, worshiping. What's Mary doing? We've seen this in the life of Mary before too as we've looked at the text. She's worshiping. And it doesn't mean that Martha never worships or that Mary never works. That's not the case at all. It just means at this time, this is how they are each expressing their love for the Lord. At this time, in our text, as we look at it, this is how each of them is expressing their love for the Lord. Verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It says a pound of very costly oil, spikenard. Well, how costly? The text right here doesn't say how much in dollars. It just plainly says what? Very costly. So how much was it? It was, it was very costly. But we also see Judas saying in verse 5, he values at 300 denarii. So by accounts in the other Gospels, a denarii was worth one day's wage. So Judas is valuing this as 300 days of wages. Bottom line, it was what? It was very costly. <laughs> Both are right. So we see back in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David makes a statement when he had sinned before the Lord and he was want, trying to make it right before the Lord and it was going to require a sacrifice on his part. And so where he was at this time, uh, there was a guy that had a farm there and he offered to let him use some of his resources to make this sacrifice. He offered everything that he had to David. You can use anything that I have for this sacrifice. And David said something that we all need to remember as well. He says, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. Because if it doesn't cost us anything, then it's really not a sacrifice at all, is it? It's got to cost something to be a, a true sacrifice. And it would have been a big sacrifice of something this costly. It would be of great value to her. But it was hers to give however she wanted. Now, we know from our text last week, and what we see today, she obviously wasn't saving, saving it for Lazarus, was she? Because she, she still had it. So that wasn't the case. But she didn't save it to use it for Jesus' burial either, right? How do we know that? Well, in the other gospel accounts, we see that Mary of Bethany 
did not go to the cross of Jesus when he was crucified. She isn't mentioned as being there in the text. We also see that Mary of Bethany did not go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. That was Mary Magdalene. Mary of Bethany, who seemed to be so close to Jesus, this family that was so tight with Jesus, seemed to have no part in the death and burial of the Lord at all. Why? Why is that? Well, maybe Mary could have understood something that the others just didn't understand or comprehend at the time. She may have known that there was no need to save the ointment for Jesus' burial because she didn't believe that he was going to stay buried. What indication is there that, that that's the case here? Well, look at her worship. She is constantly where? Constantly at the feet of Jesus, worshiping. How many times do we see that in the text? We see Mary, and she's at the feet of Jesus. When we, ourselves, are regularly, consistently at the feet of Jesus in worship, He reveals things to us. He reveals things to us that others may not see because of that close, intimate relationship with Jesus, that time that we're spending at His feet and worshiping Him. There's things that Jesus may show us, reveal to us, share with us that others may not see for sure. Because when we're at the feet of Jesus, when we're worshiping Him, we're recognizing Him for who He is, and we're recognizing ourselves for who we are in Him. Great place to be, right? At the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, recognizing who He is and who we are in Him. The text also says that she let down her hair before Him. Now in this culture, that's something that Jewish women just did not do in public. That, that just didn't happen. It was looked down upon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15 says, But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, obviously in this room this morning, we've got ladies with long hair, short hair. Keep in mind that this is a cultural thing for them. This is what's going on in that culture. If you read that text, again, looking at the text in context in 1 Corinthians, if you read a little farther, it talks about long hair on a man was a shame to him as well. I've kind of taken that literally myself. Um, <laughs> but again, it's a cultural thing. Mine is just <laughs> bald. So uh, we know that Mary here humbled herself and laid down her glory at his feet. Because what does this culture believe? We just read that verse. Uh, it's a glory to her, her long hair in this culture. And so she let it down, humbled herself, laid down or her hair, let her hair down at his feet, and it was a glory uh, to her, for her. So in this culture, at this time, the very thing that Paul says is a glory to her, her hair, she lets down and wipes Jesus' feet with it. And most of us have, well, I'm going to say all of us that are here, <laughs> well, not made a mistake there. All of us have good hygiene, okay? <laughs> I don't know. Some of us have good hygiene, and you're wondering, who doesn't? <laughs> so I'm going to watch where I sit next week. So we're clean people for the most part. But in this culture, at this time, they walked around in sandals. And so the, the dirt 
just of where they were was all over their feet. And so for someone to, to clean their feet, anoint their feet, uh, that's one thing. But to get your hair right down there to wipe the feet off, I mean, unless you had like hair down to your knees, you're going to be very close to their feet, aren't you? So it's, it's definitely a, a position of being humble before the Lord to do that, to wipe the feet, Jesus' feet with her hair, uh, anyone's feet with her hair would, would just be a, a position not only we see as a position of humility, but low, down, right? Down at their feet. So the other thing that we see that, that happened here as the ointment was poured on Jesus' feet and then as she wiped it off with her hair, she also did what? She took on the fragrance of Jesus. That very oil, that very perfume that was on Jesus, that aroma, she took on herself by wiping it with her hair. Being in that close proximity to Him, she took on that fragrance. For us, worshiping Jesus takes on the fragrance of Jesus. And that text also tells us, that verse, that the whole house was filled with the fragrance. As we come before the Lord corporately as a body of believers, and we worship the Lord together, the whole house takes on the fragrance of Jesus, that aroma. It's just such a neat uh, picture for us to know that as we are focused upon Jesus, we take on Jesus, don't we? So Scripture records sacrifice to the Lord is a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet fragrance to the Lord. When we worship together, like this morning, this whole house, like I said, this building takes on the fragrance of Jesus. This place, this room is filled with the fragrance of the Lord. Now, if it doesn't, then it's just another meeting room in Bertha, isn't it? It's just another meeting room for whatever. But if we come together and our focus is upon the Lord and we're giving worship to the Lord, this place takes on the fragrance of Jesus. So what Mary is doing here, it's not an act of love. If you use that phrase, well, what Mary was doing was an act of love. No, it's not an act at all. It's a true heartfelt expression of her love for the Lord. It's a true heartfelt expression of worship to the Lord and what He means to her. That's what the same thing it needs to be for us. When we're in worship, it needs to be a heartfelt expression of how we feel about the Lord. It needs to be a heartfelt expression of love. So Mary does this, but some of them there, we're going to see from our text, just didn't get it. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Now this is something that you think, oh, well, John, as he's writing this gospel, he knows this now because of everything that transpired with Judas, right? Jesus knew it all along. Judas wasn't fooling him at all. And so we learn three things about Judas from these three verses. Of course, Judas is the one who would betray Jesus. We know that. Judas did not care for the poor. It says it right there. 
and that Judas was a thief. And he's about to get rebuked by Jesus for what he said. Uh, we don't always know when Jesus speaks to someone, the tone, you know, because we, we didn't hear it with our own ears, so we don't know the, the tone exactly. But I believe in this particular case, this was a strong rebuke to Judas. He says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. I think this verse gives us more information about Mary's insight as to what would happen to Jesus. Jesus says, she has kept this for the day of my burial. But she's using it days before the burial. It would be like sending roses before there's ever a funeral, right? <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, in our culture, if we sent flowers. If we sent them before they're even dead, with a note, greatest sympathy. <laughs> For what? <laughs> you know, that would be a little strange, a little freaky, especially for the person receiving it. Deepest sympathies for you know your the loss of your husband. You know, what? Am I going to kill him? You know, in the next couple of days? <laughs> Maybe it <laughs> could be, huh? If he doesn't straighten up. But it's kind of strange that this this took place. Maybe she understood what he was in just a few days going to endure for her. I, I really believe that that's the case. So when the very feet she anointed with oil later on that week would have a nail driven through them when he was crucified. I think Mary had insight into what was happening and what was taking place. And Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. She is offering up true worship to me for who I am, for what I'm called to do in less than a week. Verse 8, he says, For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have always. Jesus is saying the poor will always be here and you will have the opportunity to minister to them many, many times. But for now, again, Mary has chosen the good part, the excellent part, to minister to me while I am here. So she was ministering before the Lord, but she was also ministering to the Lord, wasn't she? We need to remember that sometimes because I think so, so many times we get so busy with a task at hand and what we're doing and we consider it to be ministering for the Lord. That's true. We're representing the Lord, representing Him well by serving Him in that capacity. But we also need to remember He is blessed by our service, by what we do. And so we're ministering to Him in that as well. Jesus is saying, hey, Judas, leave her alone. I am blessed by Mary's expression of worship here. Verse 9, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So we see here that a great many Jews came not just because Jesus was there, but also to see Lazarus. I understand that. I think we probably all get that. We heard about this guy that was raised from the dead. My first thought would be, I want to go just to see what he looks like. <laughs> you know, he's dead, now he's alive. You know, what does he look like? 
What am I going to see here? So they went to see Lazarus, a man who just days before was dead, confirmed dead, buried. Now they could see for themselves that he was confirmed alive. They could witness it for themselves. But we see two reactions to Lazarus being alive in this text. Reaction number one, the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. What? <laughs> what is up with that? You know, it's like, they raised him from the dead? Let's kill him! <laughs> that just doesn't even make any sense because they could kill him and Jesus could raise him from the dead again and they could kill him and Jesus raised him. I mean, they're not getting it, are they? He was raised from the dead. And what do they say? Let's kill him. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. He won't stay dead, okay? <laughs> Jesus could raise him again from the dead. I think that you look at this text and I just see it as somewhat hilarious because their solution to the problem, let's kill him again. <laughs> what is, uh, it's just ridiculous. So that's the one reaction. Reaction number two, verse 11, on account of Lazarus, what? Many believed in Jesus. Lazarus was now a walking witness of Jesus. Number three, point number three, witnessing. So we've had working, we've had worshiping, and now witnessing. It is interesting to note that nowhere in Scripture do we have any record of Lazarus saying anything. Nowhere in Scripture is there said Lazarus said or... Now, we know he probably did, but nothing in, in the text uh, gives us indication of that. There's no recorded words of Lazarus. Yet, how many believed in Jesus on account of him? How? How is that possible? Because we really believe that you have to say something, right? To lead someone to the Lord or impact their lives for the Lord. You have to be able to say something. But we see here, Lazarus' life was a witness. He was alive. He had been raised from the dead. And where he was right now was a witness to many, many people. He was a sinner just like all of us are. But Jesus raised this man from the dead. He once was dead and now he's alive. Now the process isn't totally completed until a few days later when Jesus died for the sins of the world, including Lazarus. Then Jesus was res resurrected, conquering death that we might be raised from death and sin into new life, resurrected in Him. You see, Lazarus' story is not all that drastically different than our own, right? We were in sin. We were dead in sin. And when we came to know the Lord, He resurrected us into new life in Himself. Amen? We who believe has been, have been resurrected from the dead by Jesus. People should see us and recognize something different as well. There's something different about us, right? Something strange about us. Something different. And words should probably get out about that. We know how that goes in our families a lot of times, or close friends, you know, oh, he got religion. You know, you hear, you hear that, what's that mean, you know? <laughs> but they're curious. You know, because somebody says, yeah, you know, they, they do, they're, they're different. They're different than they used to be. And that captivates people. People want to see what that is. Well, what is different about them? I, I want to know what that is. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 13, there's a verse that I just, I just love. And Peter and John had been before the Sanhedrin, and now they were let go. This is a, a, one of many times that they come before the council. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now there's several reasons I like this verse. One of them because it, it really nails who I am, an un, uneducated, <laughs> untrained man. Now I say that because we know that uh, in so many uh, circles, uh, you know, it's required that you go to seminary, you go to Bible college, and all of these things in order to be a pastor, to be ordained as a pastor. And I get that. On, on this side of it, uh, as already being ordained, there, there's a lot of this that I wish I had. I wish I had four years of Bible college. I wish I had uh, some of the training they give you in seminary. Uh, not all of it, because some of it's not all that great. But to have that extra knowledge, that extra biblical knowledge, and, uh, would be of great value, I think. However, I also know that I can't escape the fact of where God has brought me to this place. And to be able just to share God's Word with anyone. So even as an uneducated and untrained man, I'm not looking for you guys to, to marvel at me. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. But I'm not looking for you to do that. But in this verse, there are four ways that they recognize that Peter and John had been with Jesus. That's the thing that's really interesting. Had been with Jesus. Look at the verse up on the screens. It says, they saw... They perceived, they marveled, and they realized. They witnessed these things in their lives. They saw, they perceived, and they marveled. And what was their conclusion? They realized they had been with Jesus. So too that we would be witnesses of what He has done for us, that people would recognize in our lives that we've spent time with Jesus. Do you get that? As we have opportunity, not only in a setting like this or a study during the week, whether it be our Thursday night study or the women's study that's coming up or whatever it might be, certainly we walk out of those times and it might be that people would marvel and recognize that, oh, they spent time with Jesus. Just, you know, there's joy there, they're excited. But it, we know that it needs to be a principle that's something that takes place in our lives every day, right? We need to, as, as you know, that I promote it <laughs> heavily here, not to the point of being legalistic, but I think it's something you should do. Uh, <laughs> rising up early in the morning and spending time with the Lord. It's an example that we have by Jesus Himself so that through our whole day, what? People would recognize that we had spent time with Jesus early that day to carry us through the day and that we could be that witness, that people would see and believe as we are alive, like Lazarus, working, worshiping, and witnessing, being walking testimonies of Jesus' work in our lives. Amen?